David Beeson, welcoming you to chapter 132 of A History of England. The thumping Tory win in the 1874 election ended, as we said last time, a three-decade-long period of Whig or Liberal ascendancy. Now Britain was entering a time in which the pendulum swung rather more, with the two major parties alternating more frequently in power rather than one holding a dominant position over the other. The extent of Disraeli's victory came as a shock, perhaps as much to him as to others. His biographer Robert Blake suggests that Disraeli had given very little thought to what his government would actually do if he won a general election. What's more, he was no spring chicken anymore. He was in his 70th year when he came to power and beginning to lose energy. He would lament, Power, it has come to me too late. He would prove to be far more interested in foreign than domestic policy. However, since, as Blake suggests, he had little in the way of a developed programme, what his government did domestically was dependent above all on his ministers. That made it important to get their appointment right. Like most prime ministers, Disraeli had a small group of close allies in his government. Then there were some senior figures reappointed to the post they'd held in his previous administration. Most notable of these was the man he reappointed Foreign Secretary, the 15th Earl of Derby, son of the previous Earl who'd headed the three minority administrations in which Disraeli had served as Chancellor of the Exchequer. He wasn't a close friend, but was certainly, for the time being, an ally. Then there was a the man he'd fallen out with in a big way, the leader of the High Church, High Tory trend in the Conservative Party, Lord Salisbury. His support would be invaluable if he could be induced to join the government, just as he would be a redoubtable enemy if he stayed out. Several people acted as go-between to persuade him, but none played a bigger role than Countess Derby, wife of the Israeli's Foreign Secretary, the Earl of Derby. Countess is the female equivalent of the title Earl. Ready for a little gossip? Here's a tidbit. In 1847, when she was still Mary Sackville West and aged 22, this lady married a man of 56. That was the second Marquis of Salisbury. He was the father of the third Marquis, the man we're talking about now, the one Disraeli wanted in his government. Although she was only six years his senior, the marriage made her his stepmother. In 1870, two years after the death of her first husband, Mary married the 15th Earl of Derby, the very same ally of Disraeli, who was helping him to recruit Salisbury as a minister. Salisbury didn't get on well with Derby, partly because they belonged to different currents of conservatism, partly because he had a suspicion that his stepmother had begun an affair with her future second husband, Derby, rather before her first, Salisbury's father, had died. So we have a woman who was of the same generation as Salisbury, though she was his stepmother. She was the wife of a man who was a potential opponent of his, but was trying to persuade him to join a government in which that opponent was a senior minister. What's more, he suspected that she had cheated on his late father with that same man, before marrying him once widowed. A tale fit for a telenovela, isn't it? And just a tad incestuous. Salisbury was torn about what he should do. In May 1868, he'd written about the sad state of the kingdom. A woman on the throne and a Jew adventurer who found out the secret of getting round her. 
Could he really serve under that Jew? Perhaps that would be to deny some deep-seated views. On the other hand, refusing to serve would leave him with no chance of influencing government. I know the House of Lords, he argued. My influence there, severed from my party, would be zero. There was also a personal factor. Back in 1867, when he was still Viscount Cranbourne, he'd served briefly as Secretary for India during a famine which ultimately cost, according to his calculations, three quarters of a million lives. On that occasion, he'd listened to his advisers, who told him there was little to worry about, an experience that left him with a lifelong suspicion of experts. In 1874, when he was offered the Indian secretaryship again, another famine was raging. Was this not a chance to make up for his earlier failure? He accepted the position and, to his credit, rose swiftly to the challenge. There was food available to feed the Indian famine victims, but not enough transport to get it to them. He immediately obtained cabinet authorization for a loan of six to ten million pounds. During the Irish famine, the total spent by the British government for all types of relief and over several years was only ten million pounds. Salisbury urged Sir Richard Temple, Bengal Famine Commissioner, to spend too much rather than too little. Even if it should turn out that you have made too large a provision, it will be much better than to have lost life by the slightest deficiency of supply. It's sad that this wasn't the attitude of all British governments when a disaster struck any of the territories they ruled. Salisbury's work kept deaths in the 1874 famine minimal. Meanwhile, Disraeli had built a cabinet to serve his purpose. He'd hoped to limit it to ten ministers. In the end, it contained twelve, still making it the smallest since 1832. It reflected the many currents in the Conservative Party, so no faction could snipe at it from outside. That, though, also had its downside. As Disraeli would later claim, in a cabinet of twelve persons, there are seven parties. Oh, well... In politics, as in every area of life, you can't have everything. Despite the presence of real conservatives like Salisbury, Disraeli's was a progressive conservative government. That may sound like a contradiction, but it isn't. There was a progressive wing to the Conservative Party, perhaps best epitomised by Disraeli himself. He wanted to maintain the status quo. That was what made him a conservative but you may remember that he'd often promoted the notion that the aristocracy and working class could join forces to stop the erosion of their rights by rising middle class. That stance was becoming difficult to maintain in a Conservative Party increasingly inhabited by people whose wealth came from commerce or industry, alongside the landed gentry that had been its traditional backbone. But Disraeli had said as early as in 1848, the palace is not safe when the cottage is not happy. He was appalled by the living conditions of most workers and his government was going to do something about the problem. That's worth pausing to think about. The government was conservative, but it saw no reason why that should stop it undertaking progressive social reform. Indeed, one of its main aims would be improving the conditions of the working class. That was for later, however. When it first came to power, it had no clear programme for that end. Like air rushing in to fill a vacuum, the empty space left by Disraeli's lack of good policy was filled by a bad measure 
flowing in to take advantage of it. As today, the Archbishop of Canterbury had a seat in the House of Lords. This is one of the consequences of Anglicanism being a state religion. Technically, the Church of England is the established church. The Archbishops of Canterbury and York and 24 other bishops are the Lord's spiritual and have a say in legislation that affects every citizen of the United Kingdom, of any faith or none at all. The Archbishop of Canterbury in 1874, Archibald Tate, proposed the Public Worship Regulation Bill. Its aim was to set up a secular court to sanction, even with jail sentences, various offences against the precepts of the Church. In appearance, it was directed against breaches by any group, but its main target was priests associated with what was known as ritualism. You'll remember the fuss there'd been over priests who were introducing what was perceived to be Catholic ritual into the Church of England. They started that way, people felt, but some later became high-profile converts to Rome. That was most notably the case of John Newman, who started out as an Anglican priest, but ended up a Catholic cardinal, and, in 2019, was even elevated to the sainthood. The ritualists liked incense and had even reintroduced confessionals. This was far too papist for certain Protestants, not least of them the Queen, who was deeply, deeply concerned by their behaviour. She could see them dragging the church of which she was titular head, as sovereign, into Catholicism, and wondered whether she might have to abdicate. Disraeli, who with his Jewish background and Anglican conversion, liked to describe himself as the blank page between the Old and New Testaments, was at first not terribly bothered about the whole business. But Gladstone, who had been so upset by his defeat at the polls in 1874 that he had decided to stand down as leader of the Liberal Party, and indeed to leave politics altogether, re-emerged from the outer darkness to storm back into Parliament to denounce the proposal and submit amendments to it. You see, as a high church Anglican himself, though no ritualist, he could see the measure being used against people who thought like him, as well as against the intended target. Indeed, there were even low church Anglicans who felt threatened by the provisions of this intolerant measure. Gladstone's opposition galvanised Disraeli. He threw his weight behind the proposal and party discipline got it through the Commons. When it reached the Lords, however, it ran into problems with the people inside the Conservative Party, who had the same kind of faith as Gladstone, that is, who were high church without being ritualist. Their most significant figure was once more Salisbury, who rallied against the measure, and in particular against an amendment passed by the Commons that would strengthen some of its provisions. You may remember how he'd previously said that the Lords ought to accept the will of the elected chamber over measures for which it had a serious mandate from the electorate. There was, however, no such mandate in this case. In these circumstances, Salisbury declared that he utterly repudiated the bugbear of a majority in the House of Commons. It was their Lordship's duty to take the course which they deemed to be right. This meant that, in his view, the Lords had every right to throw out the amendment, as indeed they did. Salisbury's words, however, got right up the Israeli's nose, and he replied caustically, 
He is not a man who measures his phrases. He is a great master of jibes and flouts and jeers. Salisbury had been in office in the last Derby administration for just eight months before resigning over the proposals that led to the 1867 Reform Act. This time it looked as though he might not make it even that far. However, Disraeli diffused the situation. He wrote to Salisbury apologising for remarks that had perhaps been too harsh. Salisbury replied in equally friendly terms, pointing out that he understood Disraeli's remarks might earn him some stick in the papers the next day, but... If so, I do not doubt that I deserve it, and I am much too accustomed to speaking my own mind with very little restraint to complain if others in the course of their argument find it necessary to fall foul of me. Parliamentary life would be unendurable if people took such incidents in bad part. In private, he declared that, I think I've been able to prevent more mischief in office than I should have been able to prevent out of it. On that basis, he decided it made more sense to stay in government than resign on this occasion. Indeed, he would later say of his collaboration with Disraeli that, since the public worship bill, we have worked together without friction of any kind. So he saved a promising political career, as we'll discover in due course. Meanwhile, Parliament enacted the Public Worship Regulation Act of 1874. It stayed on the statute book for 91 years until a Labour government did away with it in 1965, as it deserved. It was hardly ever enforced, although in its early days, five priests were jailed for contempt of court over actions taken under its provisions. It was ugly, intolerant legislation, in what turned out to be the last parliamentary session ever to be principally concerned with a religious matter. Adoption of the Act showed what a bad thing it had been to leave Parliament without good work to do. The devil finds work for idle hands, and the devil's work is never better done than by the intolerant. Next week we'll see how things went when Disraeli's government gave itself some rather better measures to get into law. In the meantime, the latest episode of Who the Hell is Norfolk, now out, covers quite a wide range of history right back to the Big Bang, though it concentrates on the blink of time, which is the last few centuries, in which science and cultural progress made such a contribution to our lives today. Enjoy it, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 